Watch the Throne is this evolution of what rap had been into a whole different height. Take Care is the beginning of what rap is about to become. Welcome to Long Live the Music, a podcast from It's All Dead, made by music fans for music fans. I'm Kyle Hawk. Welcome to Long Live the Music. I'm Kyle Hawk. I run a website called It's All Dead, and I host this podcast that you're listening to right now, and I'm so glad that you're joining me today. Um, I'm excited for this one. Um, It has been a while. It's been over a year, maybe two years. I literally don't remember the last time that we um, hopped on a pod like this together. But, you know, if you're a longtime listener to this show, you are very familiar uh, with a good friend of the pod, Brock Benefiel. We, we, uh, he's been on the show, I don't know how many times at this point, but we're always talking rap music. Uh, we had a side podcast we were doing for a little bit where we would, uh, it was called Decade Rewind, where we'd look back at events 10 years prior and kind of dissect the um, how we look at those events now. But one of the things that Brock um, was... Uh, when I think of Brock being on this podcast, I think of us giving out the hip hop title belt and we would do that every year. We haven't done it for a couple of years, but one of the things that was interesting, we did a crossover episode with Decade Rewind a few years ago where we gave out uh, a hip hop title belt 10 years after the fact. And that's actually what we're going to do today. 2011 was 10 years ago, uh, believe it or not. And we're going to look back on the year in rap music in 2011 and figure out who in the heck held the title belt. And I'll explain what that means here in a minute. But before that, Brock, hi, welcome. Oh, Kyle, it's so good to be back on the show. Congratulations. You know, we haven't we haven't spoken on mic since uh, you relaunched the show. And so congratulations on, on the relaunch of the show. Absolutely. I always love this podcast. So it's so good to be on. And uh, man, I have I, got, I have a lot of feels about 2011 hip hop. So I couldn't <laughs> be more excited to talk about this topic. I do. Yeah, I got a lot of I got a lot of thoughts here and uh, very kind words. Um, If you don't know, we've talked about it before on the show, but Brock uh, hosts his own podcast with his brother, Ty Benefiel. Um, It's called The Climate Pod, and I would highly recommend checking that out. It's one of the one of the best podcasts that's out there right now, regardless of topic. But they're also talking about stuff that's really, really important um, related to our planet. And Kyle, it's. So nice of you to say that, you know, obviously we talk about a, a very hot planet on the climate pod. Today, though, we're going to talk about hot tracks. So nice little transition <laughs> and uh, to 2011 hip hop. I knew you were going to do that. Um, OK, <laughs> so, so what are we doing here? We um, I mean, this has been years ago. I don't remember the first year that we did this, but it was a, the year that complex.com put out this article where they handed out the award for best rapper alive in every single year dating back to, I believe, 1979. Mm-hmm. Um, Brock and I found that article so fascinating because there's so many things you think about. Um, you know, we've always talked about on this podcast and it's all dead. I mean, hip hop is a almost like a, I mean, it's a genre, It's, uh, but it's bigger than that. And in some ways, it's almost like a competition when we think about rap music historically um, in, in ways both good and bad. But because of that, there is... Um, I mean, this this title, this idea of who is the greatest rapper alive at any given moment. And if we break time down into, you know, sections of 365 days, um, we can look over that time period and be like, who not only was like the most talented and best rapper um, in this given time, but who was also holding the most cultural influence, who was driving the genre forward, who was driving the conversation forward. There's a lot of different aspects that we look at when we think about it. But what we're doing with this podcast is looking at the span of a year and saying like, okay, we stepped back. Who was the person that deserves like the heavyweight title belt as the, when we think of 2011, who's the first person that, uh, that, that comes to mind. And so that's kind of what we're doing in 2011, Brock. I mean, of all the ones that we've done, I don't know if there's more going on in a year, at least to my memory. Maybe I'm, you know, maybe this is hyperbole, but man, that when I started putting pen to paper here, I was like, holy shit, there was a lot going on in 2011. What what are the first things that jump to your mind when you think about it? Well, it's incredible to think about 10 years. Now that 10 years have passed, how much was on the margins that I wasn't paying attention to that goes that, you know that it will go on to define the next 10 years of me listening to hip hop music and what felt so central in 2011 that didn't material I mean, I'm I'm talking about a couple of artists in particular that we will we will talk about in the show but a few artists that felt so central 
to the culture that wouldn't go on to have the careers that I thought they would in 2011. 2011 is one of those years where I didn't really see where hip hop was going. And to look back on it 10 years from now, it's incredible. The artists that I was, you know, that I was listening to and the artists that I was not listening to. It's pretty phenomenal to think about how much impact time has on on this particular year, in addition to what you were talking about, which is all just all the things that were happening. Yeah. So that's a, I think that's a great way of putting it. And the best way I think about that, if we had done this podcast on January 1st, 2012, we would have talked about like two things a lot, but 10 years later, looking back, you're like, whoa, there was some stuff that was about to happen that we didn't even realize that was like just starting to bubble to the surface in 2011. That is like really cool to look back and, and think about now. And I, I'm, I'm excited to get into all that. I've got a few just sort of like news and, and notes items from 2011 uh, that I was putting down. One, Nate Dog passed away in March of 2011. I couldn't believe that. I cannot believe it's been 10 years. Like I remember where I was when that, yeah. when that news came out. Um, he was so central to like the experience of growing up loving rap music in the 90s for me. Um, and, and just that was like such a, a sad moment. And, you know, there, I I can throw on, I mean, even to this day, I can throw on Nate Dog, uh, like a Nate Dog track at any moment and like just love every second of it. So that was a kind of a sad moment from 2011. Uh, the Tribe Called Quest documentary, Beats, Rhymes, and Life from Michael Rappaport. I, this shocked me. I was like, that was 10 years ago? Yes, it was. Um, one of the best rap documentaries that's ever been made, in my opinion. Um, absolutely incredible uh, because at the time the relationships were so frayed, uh, yeah. within that group. Um, we weren't yet to a point of reconciliation specifically, uh, with Q-top, Q-tip and Five Dog and knowing after the fact that that reconciliation was able to happen so beautifully before Five Dog passed away a few years ago, um, to think back on that is, is like really cool. Um, does that, was that crazy to you that that it's been 10 years since that documentary came out? It's unbelievable. And I think like, you know, with both of us, with Nate Dogg and with, with that documentary, you started to see how, um, how in, in a, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but how fragile life is, right? Because Five Dog is so sick in that documentary. And you start for yeah. the first time, I had not realized that he had battled any health problems before that documentary. And then um, to watch that and to understand the sort of wider picture, because, you know, I did not grow up at a time where a tribe called Quest was the center of rap music. I, my interest in rap music came a few years after their peak. And so to be able to understand where they were exactly positioned in history, uh, it's pretty phenomenal. And it, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's wild. It's been 10 years. Um, but Nate Dogg is one of those artists that was in the center of the culture as soon as I started listening to rap music and had been for some time. And there's just like, you know, he and Five Dog had that in common where they were just kind of irreplaceable parts of, of, of rap music and brought, brought very different things to music, but both were incredible artists. And yeah, that's, it was, it was cool to see. I really feel like that not only did it kick, did that documentary kick off um, their eventual reunion, but I think that that kicked off a, an entire decade of, of reappreciating a track yeah. called quest music. Yeah. Tribe called quest is one of my very first um, loves in terms of, in terms of hip hop. And it's funny, I'm remembering now, this makes sense. So uh, the summer of 2011 is when I started dating uh, Jen, who's now my wife. And like in those early days of dating, you're like sharing things that you like with each other and kind of like feeling out each other's interests and stuff. It's like one of the first things that I ever made her watch. I was like, uh, so we're going to have to sit down tonight and watch this Tribe God Quest documentary just because I, I, I need to see your reaction to this. I need you to know how important this is to me. Uh, fortunately, she didn't leave me after that, but uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, the other thing I've got down, and this isn't like news that I don't know what this is, but I was looking at it and it feels like 2011 is a really important year in terms of good music, the label and and collective becoming something different than what it was before. Because we'd kind of known it as a like this extra avenue for Kanye and friends to kind of release tracks and it it hadn't quite formed into the institution that it was about to become but 2011 right. is when it correct me if i'm wrong but it feels like a tipping point where that thing kind of became something much bigger um i mean does that stick out to you when you think about 2011 and it's not like a thing that happened necessarily but it's like a bunch of different players and events starting to align um into something that was about to happen i guess yeah, and I think this segues to like what well, the meat of this conversation because in 2011, good music is in this kind of 
Um, you know, because what good music meant to me in the mid middle 2000s and then like the prior to that, what Rockefeller meant, uh, Jay-Z's label, what that evolves into into the 2011 good music, as you mentioned, is gaining momentum. Kanye is now at the center of culture again, and all of these other artists are really starting to sprout careers. It's fascinating because, of course, that parallels to Young Money, which was the new iteration of Cash Money. And so for mm -hmm. us to have spent, like 2011 is such an interesting year for you and I, because where Kanye is, where Lil Wayne is, and where Drake are, and where Nicki Minaj is uh, at the time, is a is, is an evolution of so much of the music that you had, that first formed our love for rap music. Yeah, a hundred percent. It felt like things were starting to like, I don't know how to explain it, but it's almost like, you have the center point and all these things are starting to break out in different directions. And 2011 is a year that you look back and you see that happening like so clearly. So there's a, there's a few things that I want to like break into sections here to talk about. I think when most people hear 2011 and think about hip hop, they think about watch the throne and they think about Drake, right? Those, I think those are the two most obvious things that, that pop to mind. And I want to take time to dig into those things. But there's a couple other things that I want to talk about. One of which is, just like I was talking about, I think 2011 is a year, and this is not hip-hop specific, but it was the first year that we started to really see the walls of genre start to tumble and crumble to the ground. You mentioned Nicki Minaj. This is somebody who had, you know, had this moment in 2010 on that MonsterVerse with Kanye West, and everybody has expectations of who Nicki Minaj is as an artist and as a rapper. And then her debut comes, and it's nothing like what anybody would have expected, right? But now, in hindsight, we can see that hip hop was changing. And so the the things that come to my mind in that regard, I, I've got down, you know, Frank Ocean and The Weeknd both dropped their initial mixtapes in 2011. This isn't rap music. Um, but it's not like R&B either. This is like something you've got these new artists coming that are making music that you can't like solely classify into like one thing of like, oh, this is what this is, because there's so many different influences that are playing a part in the creation of it. But it's it, it encapsulates like the heart of hip hop culture. And so I think... Um, you know, that's another, like, I, I don't want to spend, I feel like the Frank Ocean Weekend thing is like a whole different podcast, but I have to bring it up because hip hop from 2011 going forward is deeply impacted by what both of these artists were doing with those initial mixtapes. I mean, does, does that fe seem fair? A hundred percent. And it's what, it's what I was talking about earlier when I said like artists that were on the margins in terms of um, mainstream cultural impact. So these are the, some of the artists that are going to define the next decade and have created some of the greatest music ever. And they're not in contention for the hip hop title belt, right? Because they are not at the center of the culture yet. Mm -hmm. The smartest music consumers are getting, you know, they're getting hip to these these artists. And it's funny to, for me to look back kind of like embarrassed because like it, you know, it really wasn't on my radar. I mean, Frank Ocean was, but certainly The Weeknd was not on my radar at all in 2011. Becomes one of Man. my favorite artists of the, of the last 10 years. Yeah. too. That's so interesting. I 2011 is so intertwined with with Nostalgia Old Ultra and House of Balloons for me. Like it's just, it's a, it's playing in the background. And I, I was into, you know, I was listening to, I, I, of all, everything we're going to talk about, I obviously listen to Watch the Throne the most of, of any rap music in 2011. But I was like really, really into the idea of like these mysterious artists just kind of like appearing on the internet and putting yeah. music on SoundCloud. Like that was just a thing that we hadn't really experienced. And it was like, almost like everything's about to change. Like you, you can just feel it. Um, so this is a great time to bring up what I think is the most interesting part of this conversation for me. And it is the artists that debuted or released what could be considered a debut album or a, a debut mixtape, but they, they appeared and we, they were part of the conversation for the first time in 2011. And when I started writing down the names, I was like, oh my God, I cannot believe how many artists that would define the next decade were releasing their first albums in 2011. So here's who I've got down. J. Cole. Uh, Cold World, The Sideline Story, Kendrick Lamar with Section 80, Mac Miller, Blue Slide Park, Tyler the Creator, Goblin, Childish Gambino, Camp, ASAP Rocky, uh, Live Love ASAP. And, and that was released as a full studio album in 2013, but the original mixtape, which was better, I think most people agree, dropped in 2011. And then Big Sean, Finally Famous. So, and, and you look at that and you're like, Jesus Christ. Like, I, the, the, and I was really so. 
being a fan of community and Donald Glover stand up, like I was, I was immediately into Childish Gambino and that camp album in 2011. Um, and I, I enjoyed Goblin from Tyler, the creator as well. That's really complicated. We'll, we'll talk about that some more, but I, Kendrick Lamar wasn't somebody I was actively listening to uh, regularly until two years later. Uh, J. Cole probably not till 2014. So it's like, it's interesting to look back and be like, this is the genesis um, of something happening like when you when you first saw that list of names what was your reaction or what was your thought around that it's it's so wild because for me there's no album that i go back and listen to more from 2011 than section 80 and i didn't listen to it at all in 2011 you know and i think that that list again it, it goes back to these are the artists that will go on to define the decade but so much of that was just I was completely off my radar. J. Cole was one of the few artists that was on my radar because two years prior, he had been on Jay-Z's uh, Blueprint 3 album, mm-hmm. right? So he had kind yeah. of made his name, to, I think, for a lot of mainstream rap fans then. But it's unbelievable. I mean, you're talking about one of the most influential years in the history of hip-hop because of the just the, the sheer number of artists that go on to to completely evolve the genre coming out in this year it's so exciting yeah so this is a fun exercise this is i'm so excited about this this is extremely dumb but if you happen to love hip-hop and you love nba basketball uh and you're in that cross section i think you might like this section so the first thing i thought about with this was the 1996 nba draft and the reason is it was loaded with not only like players that would become like hall of fame you know, legendary players in the NBA, but a, a class of players that completely shifted the style of play um, in the NBA going forward. Like it, it's the clear turning point from one style of basketball to the next generation of, of players that would change how the game was played. And so what I did here is I basically, I, I tried to figure out who from the 1996 NBA draft is also the person putting out the debut album. So I, I know this is really confusing, but if we look back, um, you know, which which rapper was which player. So I, I, I'm going to give you what I put down and I want to hear your reactions to this. Uh, Kendrick Lamar is Kobe. Like there's, it, he has to be. There's no other way of looking at it. Um, and to your point, like maybe a lot of people weren't listening to Section 80 in, in 2011, um, you know, but Kobe was drafted 13th overall in that draft. There were a lot of people that went ahead of him and he became the most defining uh, player from that draft. Um, I went Allen Iverson uh, for Childish Gambino uh, because this is someone who like, it was a story of like, this can't work. Like the whole, Allen Iverson narrative is like, you're too small. You're not big enough. Your style of play doesn't match what we're trying to do. And everything about Allen Iverson was like shirking the notions of what basketball was supposed to look like and what a point guard could do. And when I think of Childish Gambino and what he was doing, like he has been literally that artist of like, I'm going to all that stuff that you say can't be done. All those things that you say like, aren't what this genre is or what this sounds like. I'm going to like change your mind about that. Um, Tyler, the creator is Ray Allen. Um, this one was weird, but I feel like the player that Ray Allen was when he was drafted in 96 in his first few years with the Bucks, he was a completely different player by the mid to late parts of his career. Like he went through a complete metamorphosis of who Ray Allen, the player is. And even though he was putting up more points early in his career, the later versions of, of Ray Allen were arguably better because um, of the impact that he was having on the teams he was on and the game he was playing. Uh, J. Cole, Stefan Marbury. Just because like there's so many ups and downs and people have such like conflicting feelings about like Stefan Marbury, there were seasons where you were like, is he the best point guard in the NBA? And then seasons where you're like, I'm not sure he's good enough to be in the NBA. Um, that's kind of how I feel when I think about the career arc of J. Cole so far. Um, Big Sean, Antoine Walker, somebody that just should have been better than they actually have been. Um ASAP Rocky, I, I I went Steve Nash. I don't know if I have a really good reason for it, but it's another one of those things where it's like he's on the outskirts of the conversation. Like in '96, nobody was talking about like Steve Nash is going to like have this 20 year career where he does like all these amazing things and leads all these different teams. But now when you look back, you're like, man, ASAP Rocky. Even though he's kind of been on the fringe, like he's been like so influential and important, like in the narrative of hip hop for the past 10 years. Um, and then finally, I gave uh, I went Mac Miller and Jermaine O'Neal. Um, you know, Mac Miller's debut wasn't good. And really, it wasn't until, uh, you know, Swimming in Circles, his final two albums, where he kind of became um, this this really incredible artist. Um, and sadly, 
you know, passed away a few years ago. And, and Jermaine O'Neal is somebody that came into the league and was just an absolute flop um, until about, I think it was year nine is when things finally clicked. But right after that was Malice at the Palace, multiple injuries and just kind of like derailed his career right as it was like kind of coming into, um, into fruition. So there you go. That may have been just for me, but I had a lot of fun doing it. Do you have any thoughts on that, Brock? The J. Cole, Stefan Marbury thing is so perfect because there are just times when you're like, oh, yeah, Stefan Marbury, he's still in the league. <laughs> like, he's not, you know, like, <laughs> mm-hmm. and he's still good. Childish game, I love that because, you know, the other thing about Allen Iverson is that, you know, he comes into the NBA and he's famous, right? You know, you're talking about how people thought he wouldn't work as an NBA player, but he was an, an in addition to Marbury, one of the most famous people from that class, right? Because he had yeah. been so famous in high school. He had been so famous in college and he just kept defying the odds. And, you know, Ray Allen in a much different way, but it's kind of fascinating. And in the same way, like Donald Glover, you felt like you had to have a position on them, right? Because mm-hmm. they were, they were really changing up uh, their, their collective uh, professions. So I, I think that's yeah. so fascinating. ASAP Rocky, I mean, obviously, it's, you know, it's really problematic, a lot of the stuff that's happened around his life, but was one of those players where I just thought was going to be unbelievable, you know, and, and like, I feel like yeah. that's the, the the biggest one where I'm like, I don't really feel like that matches or it was like him and Steve Nash. I feel like Steve Nash yeah. just kept building momentum, building momentum until he was like the center of basketball. ASAP Rocky has been incredibly influential, as you mentioned, but because I think because of his um personal life and I just think the music has just gotten to become such a distraction big sean though man i think when you look back at 2011 we shit on big sean so much over the last decade where it's like he was okay you know like i don't think i think there are so many people that hate big sean and hate his collection of music and i feel like looking back and um i'm like you know he had some he, he was he was creative at times. So, and certainly yeah. Antoine Walker had some great moments in his career as well. Right. Yeah. Uh, 100%. And how much different is the Big Sean conversation right now if it's not for Kendrick's control verse? Right. Yeah. Because that's the defining, that's the first thing I think about is like Kendrick name dropping pretty much everybody we just talked about here um, of like, I'm coming after you, including Big Sean and just like destroying Big Sean on his own song. Um, it was such a defining moment just a couple years after this, and it just changed, I feel like, the trajectory of how we how we would talk about Big Sean. Um, real quick on the Chaudhary Gambino thing, one last thing on the, the Iverson comparison there. One of the big, I, I think the most memorable moments from the 96-97 NBA basketball season was um, Allen Iverson crossing up Michael Jordan, um, who was who still kind of in the midst of his prime, but it was like this moment of signifying a new class of people um, that was about to kind of take over, maybe not quite there yet, but there's this line on camp, uh, where, where, uh, Gambino says, I think it's, I'm coming for the throne. Jay and yay said to watch that. And you can just feel like he's got this fire. Like he's, he wants so badly to be a part of their conversation and like, get them to like acknowledge, uh, like what he's doing. And he wasn't there yet with camp, but he was like about to be, um, and you can just feel it, feel it coming. So, um, but yeah, so if, I feel like the the hardest thing about this class of of folks is that it's like if we drew like a graph of year by year of where each person was on the graph, there's like people moving up and down and throughout. Like obviously Kendrick in hindsight, like we said, he's the Kobe of this group. Like he's clearly the best rapper that that came from this. But there were there were moments where, you know, I mean, Childish Gambino with like some like This Is America, where he was maybe ahead of Kendrick for a moment. Um Jay Cole has had some really I mean, maybe yeah. not as many as we would have liked, but there's been moments where he held the cultural attention the most of the group. So it's it's almost been like this weird thing. Tyler, the creator, another one. Like who would have thought after the first couple of years of Tyler, the creator's career that we were going to be talking about him the way we were, you know, a year or two ago where it's like, wow, he's completely reinvented himself as an artist and one of the most influential and important voices we have in hip hop. Um, because in 2011, the biggest conversation around Tyler, the creator is like how, um, how messed up and yeah. like homophobic and like dark a lot of his music was at a time where like hip hop was trying to get out from under that. Right. So the, everybody's had such a weird and interesting journey from this point. I feel like it's just, it's fascinating. A hundred percent. They've evolved in so many different ways. And I think Tyler, the creator and Jay Kohler are two of the most interesting because I just wouldn't have thought Jay Cole's career was going to be 
as influential as well. I, I would have thought Tyler, the creator, was going to be this incredible influence over the last decade. I just didn't anticipate how that, like how the, the kind of influence he was going to have. So it's kind of wrong on both of those artists. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's, again, it's it's just an incredible cl- class of uh, of new rappers. Yeah. Now we can't really give the at least I don't think so. We're going to say we always save our title belt decisions for the end of the show. I I don't think you can argue any of these people as being in the title belt conversation. It's more of just the, they, each of these was going to be, or at least most of them were going to be a part of the conversation in the years to come, but not 2011. So when we talk about 2011, then from the title belt perspective, we have to talk about the the big hitters. And so I, I, I made this list of five albums that I feel like were the five biggest uh, and, and most important in the moment rap albums of 2011 i want to see if you agree or disagree with this list obviously watch the throne jay-z and kanye obviously take care drake and then it gets a little hard you kind of have to argue yourself into these next three but you've got Pusha t uh fear of god 2 you've got lil wayne the carter four and you've got lupe fiasco lasers and i think those three albums are in the conversation because you have to those artists were so interesting in 2011 that they have to be in the conversation. You know, whether we can vault them into arguing for a title belt, it's a different thing. Um, but what are your thoughts on that? What am I missing? Um, are, are these really the the five albums that kind of are at the epicenter? I think you knocked it out of park. Five great albums. We could spend hours, Kyle, talking about all of those albums. But I want to throw one more in the group. For an artist that we've not talked about, and I honestly don't even think is on your radar for 2011, but I think was one of the artists that I would have put the most like money into if I was going to bet on who was going to be one of the most influential, maybe it's certainly in the top five most influential uh, artists. And he certainly had an album near the end of 2011, which I would uh, argue could be into this group. And that's Ambition by Wale. Kyle, what? Yeah. How was, what was Wale on your radar in 2011? Not really, if I'm being honest. Um, It was kind of like the, you know, in the same way that Kendrick wasn't. Like the the name was there, like I know it rang out, but it wasn't like something I was actively, you know, I wasn't actively listening to him in 2011. Lotus Flower Bomb is a hit in 2011. And I would have thought, like if you gave me like, uh, gambling odds drake is the obvious one right uh drake was the obvious artist because he was the the biggest name brand 2010 he had had a huge year he was one on the biggest uh record label at the time was going to be a huge artist he was the easiest one to uh to gamble on but wale to me and lotus flower bomb in particular i thought we might be seeing a younger version of jay-z and the way wow. he, <laughs> and the way in which he used um silence and breath and had a level of sort of class to his music because i was obviously a, a very intelligent person as well and i just have really like i've listened to him on podcasts and he's done some acting in the last uh few years i think he's really interesting i just thought he was uh just kind of like bryce harper coming out of high school like this guy's just gonna find a way to be great and i'm shy and i ambition to me was one of those albums that granted it carried on to 2012 but like the fall is such a great time to listen to rap music and he is one of those artists that dominated the fall of 2011 for me interesting and i'm just shocked 10 years later that you know he's he's built this incredible career but it's never been he's never been in the hip-hop title belt conversation and it's kind of wild to me he's one of yep. the people that i would have i would have put close to the center Right. And another artist that Kendrick named in that control verse, right? I mean, I think that, and I'm saying that as respect. Like that says something like he clearly at that point um, was somebody in the conversation. But yeah, to your point, it's just not, it hasn't, uh, yeah, it hasn't grown into what maybe you, you thought that it could have been. So here's my idea. Let's work backwards through these five albums and five artists and kind of like include our, our general thoughts of the year. And I, I'm going to start backwards and work forwards in my mind just in terms of like getting the getting our conversation closer to the the title belt so push a t um he's here because one i mean i'm a, obviously he's one of my favorite rappers of all time um I, I think the fear of god too is a is a great album and this is the beginning of just a um 
a renaissance for Pusha T in his career, because who would have thought in 2011, um, after everything that went down with clips, that we were only at the beginning of the conversation of Pusha T as a solo artist and what he was going to mean for the genre, right? I mean, because even at this point, we're six, seven years away from Daytona. Um, He hasn't become president of good music yet. It was almost like a nice thing at the time, but there was no, this is one where like, we didn't even realize what, what the renaissance that Pusha T was about to have in 2011. Right. So while it was like a really great album and a cool moment, um, he was about to like take a lot of steps forward from that point in my mind. Yeah. And this is at a time when Kanye is rebuilding popularity of like watch the throne is really the year where Kanye becomes super popular again, right? He gets a critical acclaim um, from my beautiful dark twisted fantasy 2011 when he's starting to rebuild in the popular mind, his ability to take an artist that was famous literally a decade before and revive his career. 2011 is one of those years where like, Oh man, Kanye really has this power to bring up, these other artists, in addition to an artist like Big Sean, in addition to a, an artist like Two Chains later, you know, a couple years later, who never really got there and then gets there in his uh, in his new evolution uh, on good music, you know, what Pusha T was doing in 2011 was showing like, yeah, again, the benefit of being on a good label and having and being one of the best rappers and having people still see that a decade after he was, you know, really at the center of the spotlight. Yeah, hundred um... percent. From there, I probably moved to Lil Wayne and the Carter Four. This and I and I've got like here's the ways that we're gonna remember 2011. Um, one of the things I've down this is the year that we knew Lil Wayne was was past his prime. Like three years prior, 2008, 2007, Lil Wayne was inarguably the best rapper alive. And sometimes those windows are like really long. Like Jay Z is an example of an artist who's in the conversation for like decades of parties in the conversation for the title bill. Lil Wayne has this just this window where like his highest point was as high as like anybody's ever been in a discussion like this. But for some reason it, it slammed closed pretty quickly. So 2011 was almost like the Carter four is almost like the apology tour of like the one last shot from Lil Wayne to like stay in that conversation, but it's over. Right. I mean, and, and tell me if I'm being unfair. I think you're being a little bit unfair because to a large group of people, it was o- over. This is the year 2011 is the year that we find out little Wang is like kind of corny. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. this is a time where it's like he is still out there, but it's like tough to watch for a lot of really, you know, who had been fans of little Wayne since literally the late nineties. Now he's, it's like his music's kind of goofy. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But he was still incredibly famous in 2011, incredibly oh, sure. central to the culture out there, a huge part of Drake's career at the time. But man, some of the music he puts out in 2011 sucks. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you were right. The, I, I don't think that his fame necessarily ever suffered. And sometimes it even benefited from how weird things got. Yeah. But I, I think that takes away from like the, not just like central to the zeitgeist like he was in 2008, but how incredible his art was at that time too. You know, it was just like this wheelhouse moment and the wheels have were kind of been coming off ever since then. Now, I will say the Carter five a few years ago was an album that I felt like, Oh, if this would have come out in 2011, like then we're having a different conversation about that window of Lil Wayne. That was a really great comeback album, but then now it's even more problematic than it was a couple of years ago. So it's just, his arc is just so strange. And I don't know if there's a direct comparison with any other, any other rapper that I can think of. Um, I don't think there, yeah, I don't think there is a comparison, but think about those mixtapes of the mid 2000s and what that materializes in into 2008 and how influential that is on a J. Cole, a Kendrick Lamar, a, a Drake. All of these artists that come up in 2011 are building on the mid 2000s success of what Lil Wayne did. And because he had already been famous, because he had been so central to the culture with uh, cash money, he was able to, you know, go that path and kind of have one of the, like the, the biggest years in the history of rap music. And I feel like that was so, that, that, that was so impactful on the artists that would come up in the next few years after that. Yep, absolutely. Um, but it, are, are we fair and kind of like crossing him off of the, the hip hop title belt 2011 conversation? Without a doubt. So let's move forward then to Lupe Fiasco. 
So uh, this is one that I know you're excited to talk about, and I don't know which direction you're going to take it, but th- we're here and, and, and now it's happening. So I'm, I'm going to give my take on this. Um, you know, a- as we've talked before, Brock, I mean, like underground hip hop um, is a huge part of my history with the genre and, and my love of it. And Lupe Fiasco is somebody that embodied the spirit, the ideas Everything about what underground hip hop stood for me, stood for in my mind and, and the communities I was a part of, um, just in like the message and the, the skill and the art around rapping, Lupe Fiasco was like this golden child that was coming to like bring that into the mainstream. And so I, I was like on the Lupe bandwagon very early on, you know, food and liquor, the cool, um, you know, we had that great uh, verse on, on the um, Kanye track um touch the sky like you know lupe is somebody that i have a i have there was a very specific time in which he was a very important artist in my life 2007 was the year or 2011 was the year that it ended um i'm willing to admit that i was wrong about lasers i'm willing to admit that i was unfair in how hard i critiqued it at the time and it wasn't just me by the way because i my experience i'm giving with lupe was the experience of a lot of people and what happened with lasers felt like it it felt like a, like the best opportunity underground rap ever had to own the moment and it was a belly flop of epic proportions and everybody i knew was like trying to distance themselves from it like you know look i can still love lupe and in hindsight we know all these things about the situation he was in with the label and how difficult it was like the po- the point of the story is the real moral here is that underground hip hop can never be in the mainstream like it's just not it can never happen and lupe is like the an example of somebody that's put in a position in which he literally can't win so i know it's unfair but even today there's nothing about lasers that gets me excited um that's kind of where i'm at with it it's a really important album it was a big part of a conversation in my life in 2011. Um, but it's, it's something I still haven't warmed up to. So I, I want to give you the floor here. Um, cause I, I think that you have a, a really probably a unique perspective and I'm excited to hear it. Well, I don't want to take up too much time on this topic. Cause this is one of those things where I could talk about for hours, but you are so right to feel that way because even Lupe himself was in this, in such a public battle with his label that this felt like such a painful process to get this album out. And then of course, like the Lil Wayne conversation, the show goes on, that track comes out and it's corny, right? And people are like, this is so far from what we think of when we think about who Lupe was at, you know, in his prime and who we expected him to be. I feel the exact same way. In 2005, I thought we were seeing another Kanye, but like a, a like a combination of Kanye West and Talib Kweli, but also he was going to be this cross-genre uh, artist that was going to bring in so many different types of music in a way that which child get childish Gambino ended up like kind of materializing. I had all these expectations for Lupe 2011, like you said, is the year where we realize it's not going to happen. And I feel like it was, uh, it is that bastardization of his music. I think that you can hear on lasers. However, when we think about the like political atmosphere of 2011, when I think about like Lupe at Occupy Wall Street, when we think about like some of the disappointments uh, myself and many other progressives had with like um, President Obama's foreign policy and the, the fact that that was in his music, the politics of 2011, words I never said is uh, is as much a impactful protest song and speaking to the moment as any track in 2011 you did a great podcast a few weeks ago on like what an actual like protest anthem really is and how impactful they can be and what real art can can mean when lupe fiasco was at the be2 awards with a hashtag occupy um shirt on and gave that performance of words i never said it was unbelievable and he said erica badu is, is performing behind it if you've not seen it she's disguised and at the the end, she she comes out of her disguise, and you can tell it's Erica Badu. Um, but you know, there was always uh, there was you know certainly weird stuff with Lupe. He had he called President Obama a terrorist, and I think you know that that's uh, made a lot of his fans feel a little uncomfortable at the time. 
Um, he's also, in words I never said, kind of a, a 9-11 truther. So it's like a little bit of a weird line in that song. Yeah. Uh, but Lupe Fiasco was speaking to the politics of 2011 as much as any famous artist. There are tracks on that album that I think are a really interesting way to take that underground sentiment and make it into popular music and kind of have that grasp on the culture. But it just didn't quite get there but it's why lasers to me is one of the most fascinating um, albums of the year because it was almost what we wanted and lupe just didn't become the rapper that we really had hoped for yeah i you know what you laid it out perfectly there i think those are all incredible points um and he really was i mean because if we define 2011 by an album like watch the throne then of course you know a song like that, an album like that feels so off center from how that conflict that we were feeling in the midst of that, of like the Obama, that first um, Obama administration. Right. And so it's, it's like two sides of this conversation. And ultimately if lasers had been better, maybe the conversation shifts in our mind and the way we look back and think about it, but because the album wasn't good enough, that idea, that concept, that conversation couldn't fully be taken seriously in the moment unless you were able to get past all the other stuff that made it difficult. So it's like, it's like really complicated. And we just always thought, at least I always thought Lupe Fiesco was just going to be famous for a long time. Like he just seemed like an artist that was well positioned to put everything together to be out there for a long time. It just didn't, uh, didn't end up going that way. Yeah. And I just want to end this by saying again, I love Lupe Fiasco. And even if we just want to talk about who the best rapper alive in 2011 is, you still have to include him in the conversation because the guy's that fucking good. And those out, those first two albums um, are always going to be important to me. I still listen to them. Um, So it's just a, it was a really strange and and fascinating moment. So that brings us to, um, I think what has to be the big two Um, Drake's take care and uh, watch the throne. Wh- which one do you want to start with? How do, how do we even approach this part of the conversation? Well, I'll be completely honest. Of these two albums, Take Care is the one that I revisit way, way less than Watch the Throne. Take Care is an incredibly big album, but it, it just pales in comparison to, I think, the uh, the influence that Watch the Throne has had. Well, Absolutely. And I, I'm with you. I'm, I think both of us were listening to Watch the Throne more than we were listening to Take Care in 2011. That, that's a given. Um, I think what Take Care means in terms of what was about to happen in the genre, there's not really another album that I can think of off the top of my head in the past 10 years that had the impact in turning the corner like Take Care did. And what's fascinating about that is fellow Toronto na- native The Weeknd, like half the tracks on that album are songs right. that Abel gave to Drake, right? So like, again, we go back to talking about how somebody like The Weeknd is impacting what hip-hop is about to become. Um, those names and those that music and those sounds are all intertwined. Um, so let's start with Take Care, because I think both of us are kind of know the conversation around it. We're both probably not as qualified to talk about the impact of Take Care as others are, but it's it's impossible to... Um, talk about 2011 without spending time on that. Um, You know, give me the argument, the best argument you can of Take Care being the album that we need to define 2011 with. And if we're going to give Drake the title belt, what's the argument for it? Well, if you compare it to Watch the Throne, Watch the Throne is this evolution of what rap had been into a whole different height. Take Care is the beginning of what rap is about to become. It is the cornerstone of Drake's entire career. And what it did in 2011, which had not happened in Drake's career in 2010, is it really defined the persona of Drake and his style of music in a way that was going that has defined his career in the 10 years since. There is so much more on Take Care that you have seen in the artists that we named that were coming up at the time than was on Watch the Throne. So I think that this is just makes the the prolific, longstanding fame of Drake and his influence. All of that is on Take Care. And it has a hit. The fact that the title track of the album is this hit with Rihanna, that the fact that it is this that Drake is now at the center of the biggest rap label. And the cool thing, and I, I always, I think I probably talk about this too too much, but 
the Jill Scott Heron sample on Take Care is such a cool thing. Like I just I I I love I love that so much. And I think this is was a great album. Is it one again? Is it is the easiest album to revisit? Absolutely not. But in terms of influence, I think it's hard to say. It's 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 pretty unmatched, even when you compare it to Watch the Throne. Isn't it fascinating how Watch the Throne and Take Care are just such polar opposite ends of the emotional spectrum, right? And that Take Care is it's uh well, Watch the Throne is a victory lap. It's the culmination of 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 these careers, of this moment of rap music. And Take Care is really what like we said, is defining what's about to come. This iconic album cover of like a really sad looking Drake and the and the goblet uh, and a song like Marvin's Room, which at that point was hard to even fathom what that would, like if you're going to tell me like this is where hip hop is going and here's this track that's like not like anything we've ever heard or experienced and it's so vulnerable. Like it's, it's just fascinating how different these two experiences are happening simultaneously important and valid and interesting. Um, and, and it's just, it's crazy to look back on. And I, I've got down here as well that 2011 is the year that rap became meme worthy. And I guess what I mean by that is like thinking about the, that Drake album cover and like right. a, an artist like Drake and, and rap music becoming, uh, you know, being able to encapsulate a moment and a feeling about rap music and like a gif or something like that. That's really hard to explain, but that was like definitely a thing Drake was bringing into like what the hip hop experience was going to be. Right. Yeah. We were talking, you know, you and I have had conversations uh, outside of the podcast about DMX's passing over the last couple of weeks. One of the interesting things about DMX's career, DMX obviously had a lot of problematic music and had a lot of like machismo in his music, but there was always this vulnerable side of DMX's music that's interesting. I think a lot of people uh, of our age really identified with. And when he passed, people were talking about that vulnerability in his music. Drake is this beautiful child star, rich person at, you know, in his early 20s at the peak of his career. I think he's like 25, went there, 24 when Take Care comes out. And he is sitting at the table depressed. You know, he is vulnerable first in a way in which someone like him was just supposed to dominate. It was just supposed to be like control versus, you know what I mean? Yeah. And the fact that he was like, I am at the peak and I, there is still a hole inside of me that isn't filled was such was so yeah. transgressive in an interesting uh-huh. way because Drake, the platform was already there. He had already climbed to the top of the mountain. He had already arguably won the title belt. And I think, and I think complex had awarded him the title belt in 2010 um, in, you know, the year before he was at the top and he's like, it's not healing me. And it was an unbelievable move. Yeah. So I've got a few quotes here from the the complex article in which they do give uh, Drake the best rapper alive um, award for 2011. It said, Drake is like the LeBron of rap, albeit with more hair, and he can seemingly do anything, rap, sing, craft projects, create a soundscape, and drop meme-worthy lines. His sophomore set showed that Drake had uh, many skills, but his greatest gift was his ability to internalize the struggles and make them universal. Call it emo if you like, but feeling regret over a lost lover, feeling proud of your accomplishments, and feeling like you're the best, but still have 10, uh, ten years left is what we ought to expect from uh, brash young men. Um they they really kind of capture everything that that you're saying there and everything you're talking about, um, and and it's obvious why he has to be considered as as being that center point. I don't think either you and I are going to end this podcast by giving Drake the title belt. I think a lot of people are going to disagree, and I think that they are fair in that disagreement. But I'm going to move us into uh, talking about Watch the Throne now because I you and I didn't know each other yet. Um, I have a feeling that you like me. This is the album that defined the summer of 2011 for you. Um, This album is intertwined forever with the year 2011 for me, for so many reasons um, about our love, my love of rap music and and watching it. This was like the top of the mountain and we're just like going to celebrate. We're throwing a party. We've arrived. Nobody can take this away from us. It was just a, it was a, at the time, it just felt like this really beautiful, fun, exciting moment. And I don't know. I I've, I can say all kinds of stuff, but I want to like give you the floor here to kind of like talk about your experience with Watch the Throne in 2011 and what that album means to you now. 
Well, we didn't know each other in 2011. We did know each other in 2019. And you and Kyle, you and I went to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And that's Leonardo DiCaprio. That's Brad Pitt finally in a movie together. Quentin Tarantino is going to direct it. We go and see the film and it's just good. And it's just enjoyable. And it's just fun. And that is such how I felt listening to Watch the Throne. Watch the Throne is such it's so celebratory in the music itself. It is these two artists that, you know, obviously with 10 years since we've we've realized how how painful their relationship has been. This is one of those moments where they had, you know, reconciled in a way in which we were we were hoping uh, a tribe called Quest would and so many of our favorite artists would we we, we want our favorite artists to be friends and they're <laughs> friends and they're celebrating and they're having this great life. And, you know, Jay-Z two years earlier had had this monster hit album. You know, your miles may vary on how good you think Blueprint 3 is, but there was undeniable how influential that album was. And here he is. Kanye has had this, um, his first run in with a lot of bad publicity. He's made this great album. And now his, now this, this, you know, this marketing stunt becomes something that we all can enjoy and is undeniably good. The fact, you know, we'd always loved Kanye and Jay-Z's music. They hadn't made enough music together. And there were times in the late 2000s when it seemed like they would never make music together. The fact that they made an album in 2011 and it paid off and you had Beyonce on the album at a time where, you know, like she was still, she was at, she was still like rising, you know, in her career. Um, it's unbelievable. And it's absolutely, um, other than I think maybe Section 80, the, the album that I go back and listen to the most. Yeah. And what's funny about it is that you can't argue that it's the best work of either Jay-Z or Kanye, but what that album meant in terms of both of their career trajectories is completely different, but like super valid and important for both artists. Like you mentioned, this was Kanye, uh, by 2011, it seemed like he'd really overcome what could have been like a career crushing moment. Um, we, we explored that on a, on a, on a different podcast, but like, you know, 2011, not only to see this reconciliation, but to see Kanye get over that hump and to see Jay-Z in the beginning of like what was a completely new chapter of his career that I don't think anybody saw coming or really even thought was possible. It really kind of started, like you mentioned, with the Blueprint 3, but um, his career has been so fascinating and it's had so many different sections you can break it up into. But this is really important of like what his presence um, as a hip hop statesman meant of he and Beyonce's relationship of like his hold over like the, the cultural arc and force of hip hop. There's just so much going on with it, even though it's not the best album of like either of theirs respectively, it's such a good and important album for both artists and for the fans that just really wanted it to happen. So, well, Oh, go ahead. And, you know, so much of what had defined Jay-Z's music in the, the 90s and the 2000s was this idea of wealth and power. And that kind of culminates into this album where it's like of a different class. And it's literally talking about achieving levels of success that he thought was it was even un, would have been unavailable to people like him. And he thought uh, was, was even going to be unavailable to him. Kanye West, it's, you know, it's obviously weird to think about this now, 10 years later, but racial justice was a huge part of his music early on. And the fact that he and Jay-Z are championing racial justice and really giving it a level of visibility that it might not had had outside of uh, the other albums that are coming out this year. Like, you know, the fact that that is, that's one of the big focuses of this album. And it's, a celebration album, right? In so many ways. And in other ways, it obviously gets very serious too. The fact that those two artists are like using their power to shed light on some really important issues was really rewarding as a listener. Yeah. And that's a great segue into the um, another kind of write-up I wanted to share. So Shea, Shea Serrano um, has the, the rap yearbook in which he awards the most important rap song every year. So that's a different conversation than the, the title belt, but it does speak, I think, to this um, to this conversation we're having. And really, you kind of have to either consider Marvin's Room or you have to consider the song that he chose, which is Paris um, from, from Watch the Throne. And he writes that it's about celebrating being able to attain wealth while, while being black, which is hard. It's also about celebrating being black while wealthy, which is also hard. Um, it was the apotheosis of luxury rap, which turned out to be just as biting and trenchant as gangster rap. Jay and Kanye's luxury rap reported the mental lashing that came 
uh, with being a wealthy black male in a high society that was better equipped at ignoring wealthy black men than understanding them, um, which I think captures it perfectly. And we're going to see two years later with Jesus, Kanye approaching this uh, from a completely different um, state of mind, right? This is the we're not going to let any of this hold us back. We're going to celebrate where we're at and what this means. Um, Jesus is saying like, fuck you. You have no right to, <laughs> to put me in, in this place. You have no right to box me in. Um, and, and those are like two conversations that are the same being approached completely differently, both uh, really fascinating. There's a lot to talk about there, but, um, but yeah, this is the song I think that kind of resounds or plays in the background of, of 2011 without a doubt for all the reasons that he laid out there. But when I, I want to ask you what's, you know, 10 years later, what is, what is your favorite song from watch the throne? Oh my God. Let me look at the track list. I'm sorry. Well, I'm going to give mine um, and, and it's track one. And interestingly enough, but no church in the wild, that song and starting the album, I still remember starting that album and hearing that song and being like, oh my God, like this is about to be the best like stretch of my life right now. Like I was just so, so fired up. It's such an incredible song. Frank Ocean uh, on the track as well. But yeah, there, there's, a, there's a lot of great songs to choose from, but that one for me is still the one that when I hear it, I'm just like, I'm transported back. I feel good. It's just everything about that song is perfect to me. This is so hard to choose because you have the illest motherfucker alive. You have Ham. You have Otis. Those are such monstrous tracks. I think Otis is one of the ones that I go back to and listen to the most because uh, it has like so, so much of that signature Kanye style on that track. And I think uses Jay-Z in a really interesting way. But man, that's a, it's such a well-balanced album. Yeah, 100%. Well... Before we decide who won this title belt, I want to talk about one more thing really quickly. So I mentioned Nicki Minaj earlier. We've had this discussion a lot in doing this podcast because it's the hardest part about doing this. The The Complex article acknowledges it. Shea Serrano acknowledges it in his book. The male dominance of these types of conversations is impossible to not comment on. Um, and, and we're doing it again. And the thing that I want to bring up about 2011 is, um, so Pink Friday, Nicki Minaj's debut album actually came out the year prior at the end of 2010, but that album owned top 40 radio in a way that nobody else that we've talked about can compete with over the course of 2011. But most of the rap community considered that album to be a letdown of what they wanted Nicki Minaj to be, the music they wanted her to make. I want to ask you, can we look back on this now and be like, just talk about like how fucked up that was? Because now with what we've seen people like Cardi B do, Megan Thee Stallion, the way women are doing in hip hop, what Drake was kind of doing in 2011 and just changing what the conversation should look like, changing like the mind state of what people should expect out of hip hop. Um, I feel like Nicki Minaj was doing that and she took the brunt uh, in 2011 in a way that we look back on now. And I just, it just feels gross. It's hard for me to talk about 2011 and not talk about the person that was like one of the most forefront artists of that year. Right. It's such a bummer. And I feel like this goes on to define so much of her career. And I think when we look back at her career, we're like, it just, it just sucks. You know what I mean? Cause I feel like I, you know, I'm sure she's had, um, I don't want to just say I, you know, I feel bad for her and her music. She was able to accomplish so much with her career, but I do feel like this there was this weird sort of pressure that she was under to be a kind of person yep. for a, a, you know, a kind of uh, for the for a certain record label or for these kind of commercial interests, and it's just it's just a bummer. Like it's just, it, it's one of the things that makes that really just kind of makes me sad looking back on 2011. Not to say that like. I, she should feel bad about her career. She should feel sad. She's an extraordinary person. But yeah, 2011 was was this weird year because 2010, obviously, the, the highs have been so high. Yeah, 100%. There was a lot of pressure on her. She has spent the majority of her career almost like trying to get out from under that or try to meet whatever those like collective demands were of like what her art should look like. And it, it is a bummer to look back. And I just wanted to bring that up. And look, so, I, I know that, like, sorry to, to interrupt, but like, I know, you know, it's not as if we've um, reached some level of absolute equality 10 years later, but you mentioned Cardi B and you mentioned Megan Thee Stallion, and it, it is like we are, I feel like, seeing 
progress in some ways. And it's yeah. look at like city girls, like you, it, it's just a bummer. We were s- still so far behind in 2011 to even where we are right now. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, even just talking about the, the Tyler, the creator album goblin, you know, for all the things that we can say good about that album, but embodied so much of what rap needed to just leave behind and, and move on from. So it's a, it's really a transitionary year in so many ways. And now it's time for us to figure this out. Like, who in the hell won the hip-hop title belt in 2011? Brock, I'm going to put you on the spot first. Who are you giving it out to? Kyle, this is one of the decisions where 10 years has literally made the difference between who I'm going to pick because my pick is Drake. Oh, I didn't see it coming. I didn't think you'd do it. Kyle, 2011 was such an extraordinary millennial year. This is the heart of millennial life in 2011. This is one of the most millennial years. Take Care is the ultimate millennial album. Is it as influential as Watch the Throne? It is more influential than Watch the Throne. 10 years from now, with the perspective of 10 years, we know that now. Drake had his finger on the pulse of the culture in a way that not even... Kanye West had. Did Kanye West make a better album that year? Absolutely. Is he the better rapper of the two of them? Absolutely. But Drake defined 2011. Take Care, again, I don't think it's it's the best album of the year, but I think Drake is the most 2011 rapper. We have constantly talked, we have an entire podcast years ago that we did, where we talked about Drake has just never been able to be the best rapper or have the best production or the best concept album. He had never broken out with the hip hop title belt. But as I look back, now that he has had this long career of consistency, he's a prolific rapper. Has he had many great albums? No, but like, who are we to define like what, you know, great album, how meaningful great albums are? Like that's a dinosaur of your, you know, the baggage you and I bring to rap music and what our expectations are. Drake is, is part of the generation that ascends that and becomes something else. And when you look back at 2011, that's when it all came together. And that's the year where Drake didn't just become a popular artist, he became Drake. And if you look back, it's undeniable that he owns 2011 in a way that Kanye West cannot. Okay, there it is. Um, I think you're probably, I, I can't, like I said, Anybody that says Drake, you can't, there's no like really good argument against it. But I did pick someone different. I'm I'm giving the title belt to Jay-Z. Um, wow. Yeah. So I think there's a, a few reasons here. And it kind of goes back to what I was talking about earlier. When we think, one, this moment shouldn't have even happened in 2011 for Jay-Z. Like we, for Jay-Z to be in the title belt conversation in 2011 seemed unfathomable even in like 2006, right? Um, and if we even go back a year and think about like Jay-Z's verses on My Beautiful Heart Twisted Fantasy, it felt like Little Brother has surpassed Big Brother. It felt like the torch has been passed. Jay-Z is now a relic. He outshines Kanye on Watch the Throne. And I think if we look at the art from Jay-Z and Kanye, even from that time period, I think you have a really time, really hard time arguing that Kanye has done better than Jay-Z in the 10 years since Watch the Throne happened. I think Watch the Throne vaulted Jay-Z back into the conversation, not just as like, you know, the like a hip-hop elder statesman or somebody that people are always going to respect and always think highly of, but somebody that was really at the forefront. And and sure, we can look at an album like 444 and say that, that an album like that doesn't happen without an artist like Drake, right? Like there's all these things where Jay-Z has kind of morphed into following like what hip hop is now, but he's done it really well. You know, look at the stuff that he's, you know, the, the album with Beyonce a few years ago. Like the fact that Jay-Z didn't just take this opportunity to like peace out with like one final like good, awesome, fun album that he did with Kanye, but use that as a launching pad into like not just this but for the next 10 years i'm going to be at the top of your mind i'm going to be in the discussion you know was magna carta holy grail the album we you know wanted it to be no probably not was you know what happened with the jay-z beyonce relationship i mean there's there's a lot of things we can criticize jay-z for in the 10 years since this album happened but the fact that jay-z is like front row in every conversation we're having around pop culture and hip-hop as a whole 
over this past decade leads me to believe that this moment meant something um, for that to happen. And that's why I feel like I have to have to give it to him while also saying like, I, it's so hard to argue against Drake. So I don't know if I'm, I, I, what are your thoughts? Well, I just want to say a couple things on Jay-Z because I think the cultural sway that he has in the last 10 years is unmatched of anyone that we've talked about on this list. And it, it's important in many ways. We think about the Obama years, the fact that, you know, Jay-Z and Beyonce were essentially like the second couple, right? Like this was, this then to, to have them be fixtures at the White House and to have a relationship with the president. Obviously, Kendrick Lamar will go on to go to the White House as well, but Jay-Z and Beyonce were, were lifted into um, a level of class that I think was so important to the culture. Jay-Z is a complicated dude. So much of his music is really complicated and problematic. And some of the rooms that he wanted it to be, you know, included Roger Goodell. And so I know I think people have had a lot of complicated feelings about Jay-Z, and obviously his relationship with Beyonce, but incredible like an, an incredibly important person to the culture, nevertheless. And part of this 2011 is just like you said, is building onto that success into something that is going to last generations. And if you think about so much of the heartache of what we've seen from some of our favorite rap artists, the, those pressures and institutional racism and just like the, the way like commercial music just beats people down, they haven't been able to achieve that kind of success that's going to last generations. And so it is cool to see, like you said, this victory lap where, where Jay-Z still was in the center. So I'm not going to give him the belt. I don't think uh, he was as as influential as Drake was this year, um, but an incredibly important artist. All right. We did it. This felt like a big one. I, I, I thought we like both were going to... I thought you were going to pick Kanye, and I thought you thought I was going to pick Kanye. I didn't know what you were going to do, but I didn't think it was going to be Drake. Um, but it yeah, was Wale. Was fascinating. It was Wale. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> No, this is this was a blast, man. I I am so glad that we got a chance to uh, get on here and do this. Is there anything else we're missing from 2011? Anything else we need to touch on here? Was um was Macklemore in the mix here? Because uh, I feel like we didn't do that justice. Uh, didn't <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't think so. I think we might be a year <laughs> early on Macklemore. Okay. Yeah, we gotta. Yeah, we'll get into Macklemore in the 2012 one. I think. I can't wait. I can't wait because obviously that's who we're gonna pick for 2012. Absolutely. hundred percent. Um, apologies to Kendrick Lamar. Well, we were and speaking of which we were almost hoping Kendrick would have an album out by the time we did this. Not yet, but God knows we're, we're waiting on it. So, uh, Brock Benefiel, thank you so much. Where can people go to learn more about the climate pod? Where do you want them to, to go? Yeah, you can subscribe to the Climate Pod. We're on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get uh, your podcast. You can also follow us on social media. We're at Climate Pod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And uh, we we get into you know Ty- Kyle. We've had some interesting musicians on the show, uh, so we we don't talk about music much. But if you want to get in depth on some one of the defining issues of uh, of, of our time, we do some some really fun. We have some really fun conversations, some interesting conversations on the Climate Pod. Thank you for shouting it out. Yeah, of course. That episode where Lupe Fiasco was on, I, I was not expecting him to um, to have some of the, the opinions he did on, on climate change. That was bold of you guys <laughs> to bring him on there. But Kyle, uh, I'll tell you uh, a little exclusive just between uh, you and I and, and for the listeners. We actually tried to, we invited Lupe Fiasco. To, we did a live show in Chicago. We tried wow. to get Lupe Fiasco to be at the show and we were unable to meet his feet. But uh, it didn't work out. But we did try to have Lupe Fiasco on stage. So yeah, part of the agreement Lupe was... <laughs> Part of the agreement was he had to be given the hip hop title belt for 2011. And you just weren't willing to <laughs> That's do why it. we couldn't do I it. I understand. <laughs> All right. Brock, thank you for joining us on the pod today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Kyle. All right. Thank you for listening to Long Live the Music. Uh, if you're not subscribed to our podcast, do so. Do it on Apple Podcasts. Do it on Spotify. Do it on your podcast platform of choice. Uh, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how we're doing. And of course, come visit us at It's All Dead. That is going to do it for today's show. I'm Kyle Hawk, and we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to Long Live the Music. If you like our show, come find us on Twitter and Facebook at It's All Dead. And of course, come visit our website, itsalldead.com.